Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts. And today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Kalila Green Siciliano. Kalila is a mom, a surrogate, a pregnancy loss survivor, the founder of Ours and Yours, a pregnancy loss survival toolkit, a speaker, and the host of the podcast, Pushing Through Loss. Kalila speaks about her experience with surrogacy, pregnancy loss, and creating her survival toolkit in order to help her audience feel empowered to use their own struggles to work with them and not push against them. Kalila has been on stages from California to Pennsylvania, doing both all-women musical productions and speaking gigs for most of her life. She is unabashedly obsessed with Disney. Her family currently has four cats, two dogs, one gerbil, and five chickens. So, Kalila, between your family obligations your pet owner obligations, and your podcast and everything else that you do for for women struggling with surrogacy and pregnancy loss. When do you sleep? <laughs> I think that's a good question. Um, I, I'm kind of an early bird, so my husband would like to say by 9.30, my carriage turns into a pumpkin, but um, I don't usually go to sleep until close to 11 or midnight, and then I'm up at 6 or thereabouts. That's me too. I'm an early bird. I, I'll go to bed about 10, 30, 11, and then I'm up at like five o'clock just rearing to go. So, yeah. um, and I've, I've been used to functioning that way most of my life, but anyway, welcome. Um, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about all things about surrogacy loss, which is a loss. I believe, you know, at least from my experience in the grief world, doesn't get talked about that much, doesn't get acknowledged as much. But yet, it's something that it needs to be honored as much as any other loss that we experience in life. So, I'm glad that you you opted to spend some time to talk about this very important topic. So, thank you. It's definitely one that um, I, after going through a pregnancy loss, I I made it my mission to really allow people the space to talk about their own stories because, like you said, it's just not spoken about. Yeah, and it needs to be, or also. That goes into the category of disenfranchised loss, and I'm sure we'll we'll get more into that. But anyway, for our listeners, please tell us about the experience or experiences that have influenced your life path. So I'll start once I actually met my husband, because I feel like, thank God, I was raised by two amazing parents. They're both still alive. Um my mom had breast cancer twice in my lifetime and is a survivor of that. My father is fairly healthy. We've lost a lot of people throughout my life, so I don't know if that necessarily influences how I am now, but I I will start a little bit later. Um, my husband and I met when I was in my mid-20s. Um, he's about six months younger than I am. We like to joke that 
as of July, I'm a year older because his birthday's not till the next year and he's in February. So as of right now, I am officially older again. But um, when we met, he was very interested in looking into Judaism because I was raised as a Jewish woman. Um, I didn't really find the religiosity part of it until I was in my 20s and when my husband said he was interested in looking to convert. So we became more religious together. We got married in 2010. Um, it was right after I turned 29. And since I was a kid, I've always wanted to have my own kids. Like if you had asked me when I was a young child, first grade, second grade, whatever, people would say, Kalila, how many kids do you want? And I would say eight. Like without even blinking, eight was the first answer I had. Um, so when we, we thank God we got pregnant right away, or I guess I got pregnant right away, really. Um, my daughter was born nine months, almost exactly to the day of when our wedding was. And everything about it went exactly as planned there. It was like textbook perfect. I didn't have a day of morning sickness. I didn't have any swelling. I didn't go through any of those typical pregnancy symptoms that everybody talks about. And I thought that my body was made to be pregnant. I was like, this is exactly why I am here on this earth. And when she was about 18 months or so, we decided that we wanted to try again and see what would happen. And it took a little bit longer this time. So it, about six months later was when we got pregnant with my second child. And again, with his pregnancy, there was no and, and anomalies, abnormalities, nothing. It was completely normal. He was born a week late, which is like the only thing that was even out of the ordinary. But even at that, my son was only a pound and a half larger than when my daughter was born. So he obviously needed that extra week in there to just grow a little bit more. My third son, same, or my third child, my second son, same thing. He was conceived after about six months of like finally when we decided that, yes, we were ready. And then it took about six months. Um, and he also, no weird pregnancy symptoms. I grew him perfectly fine. I didn't have any sort of preeclampsia. I didn't have any sort of swelling. Like the only part of me that looked pregnant was my belly. My face was completely the same. I used to have friends that would say like if I turned backwards and they would only see my back, they would never know that I was pregnant. And then the second I turned around, it was just this big belly. So um, he was actually born a week early and I kind of felt like I was cheated out of a week of pregnancy. And all of my friends thought I was nuts. They were like, you are the most crazy person. You actually love being pregnant. You feel like you were cheated when you didn't have that extra week. And I was like, yes, I really wanted it. And I was expecting 40 weeks, not 39. So that really formed where we then moved forward into surrogacy because I felt like at that point, I didn't think eight kids was in the cards when I was finally a grown up myself, but um, I knew I was so loving being pregnant that I wanted to try and do that for somebody else who couldn't be pregnant. And so my husband and I started looking into it and being that we are religious, it was something where not only did we have to look at what the actual law in the state was, but we had to look at the religious law in Judaism also to see if it was possible. And so not only did we have conversations with fertility groups and um, surrogacy agencies, we also had to have conversations with various different rabbis to find out what the laws were. Were my children connected to this child? Was I going to be connected to this child forever? What did that entail? And when we got those answers, we found out we were able to move forward and become a surrogate. It had to be for a Jewish family. 
and um, we put our feelers out to see what we could find. And the story of how we actually got to the surrogate family that we ended up working with is for sure its own long story. So the highlights are basically that the first few couples we met with just we didn't mesh with. Um, There's a lot of different questions that you have to answer and there's a lot of really deep diving that you have to go into not only for yourself but with your husband to make sure that everyone's on the same page and then also make sure that the couple is on the same page. And it took us a few sort of trial and errors to get to the right family. And then when we found them, we were like, that's it. This is this is a match made in heaven. Um, And so that's that's what led me to surrogacy and sort of led into who I am now. Yeah, and it's interesting because I know know, with my wife, you know, which, you know, giving birth to three children, she was ready at at about just close to the due date to be to be done with the pregnancy because, you know, it's stressful. You know, you're carrying a lot of extra weight, Um, especially she gave birth to her third child in one of the hottest summers known to memory where we were. Oof. So it was really uncomfortable for her. But what struck me is the fact that you really enjoyed so much being pregnant. It seems like that made you perfectly suited for the role of being a surrogate. 100%. And it's funny because I even had friends before I said I wanted to be a surrogate that used to joke around and say, you know, if we ever wanted somebody to have kids for us, we're going to you. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I would love to, but I'd like to have my own kids first. So let's wait for that. You've already mentioned a lot of the requirements for surrogacy and what a surrogate is. I know you mentioned that there were laws in Judaism, you know, regarding being a surrogate uh, uh, parent. Are there any other requirements that women need to be aware of if they wish to become a surrogate surrogate parent besides any religious requirements? There are. Um, 99.9% of the time, a doctor is going to require that you have been pregnant already because they want to make sure that you have had successful pregnancies, that you have a fully healthy uterus. They want the best place possible for that embryo to be implanted. And so they want to make sure that you're not some sort of carrier to get preeclampsia or that your body is not a hostile environment in some way, shape, or form. This, This family could be putting in hundreds of thousands of dollars because they've already tried IVF themselves most likely and it failed. And so they want to make sure that when they're looking for a surrogate, it's somebody who they know for sure has already had successful pregnancies, um, typically at least one, sometimes a, a few more, maybe two or three. And ironically, they actually don't want you to have more than six usually, um, because then it becomes unhealthy for you and your uterus might have stretched too much. Um, the other things they look at are whether you've had a C-section or not, whether you have high blood pressure they, they do sort of a psych evaluation to make sure that you're okay with knowing that you're going to be giving this baby back to their parents. Um, they make sure that your husband is okay with it too. So my husband had to go through the psych evaluation. And I think that was most of the requirements. Um, uh, depending on the agency, sometimes there's a BMI requirement because like I said, they want to make sure you're as healthy as possible. So mm-hmm. They want to make sure that your your ratio of how tall you are versus how much you weigh is is in order. And usually there's an age limit. As a first-time surrogate, you should be under 40. As a second-time surrogate or more, they sometimes raise the age a tiny bit, depending on your health. Well, thank you for that. I, I honestly did not realize that there were that many requirements of being a surrogate, that it was that detailed, and the evaluation process was that thorough. Yeah. So th- thank you for educating not only me, 
but those who are going to listen to the podcast. Yeah, of um, course. Now, you had mentioned on your website that you were drawn to the couple for, who, for whom you gave birth to their child. Can you tell our listeners what specifically drew you to that couple? Well, one of the things that immediately we connected on was the fact that as part of the questionnaire that you have to answer, one of the questions that always stuck out to my husband and myself was, if medically necessary, would you have an abortion? And my husband and I, these are some of those questions where you really have to dig deep. And my husband and I both agreed that we would not have an abortion unless it was medically necessary. Now, those words become very dicey because what is med medically necessary for me might not be the same equivalent to somebody else. And when we met the couple that we ended up being a surrogate for, their requirements were the same as ours. They wanted a baby. They wanted a baby, whether it had Down syndrome, whether it had spina bifida, whether it had seeing problems or hearing problems, it did not matter. Thank God none of that was an issue. But that was really what connected me with them to say, they just want to start a family. So that their desire to want to start a family, that's what drew you to mm -hmm. them specifically. Um, and they would, they would draw me to, especially seeing a, a, if they're a younger couple starting out and they, they want to have that, they want to have that family and you can provide some assistance. Why not? Right. And, and again, as we mentioned earlier, you were quite suited for the role of surrogacy because you enjoyed being pregnant. Exactly. Now, specifically, what was your experience with surrogate loss? Do you want, do, do you want to go into that to the extent that you're comfortable? Sure. Doing that? Um, the first few times talking about it, it was definitely very difficult, but I think it's been over a year and I'm, I'm much more equipped to manage. Um, and really that's the goal of my podcast and that's the goal of all of the things that I've come out with. So I, I will definitely share. Um, I went in, I, I actually gave birth to the first baby in December of 2019. So we knew that I had to let my body rest for at least a year before we could even think about doing surrogacy again. And it really kind of worked out with timing with COVID because I knew I couldn't get pregnant yet and they knew that we couldn't move forward. So until there was more research out to figure out how a baby reacted or how a mother reacted when COVID was present and all that kind of stuff, it really gave us time to say, okay, we can sort of take a break and not focus on this quite yet. So in January of 2022, I was given the green light to be able to start medication for IVF because it takes a few weeks to lead up to the actual transfer. So I started the medications and in May of 2022, I um, went in for the actual transfer. Every week after that, for the first nine to 12 weeks, depending on what state you're in, you go in for a checkup to make sure that not only the embryo has implanted in the right place, but that it's starting to grow properly. You check for the heartbeat. You check and see they actually had implanted two embryos. They wanted to see if one had attached or if both had attached. So every week you're supposed to go in. They want to check your HCG levels. They want to check all those different things. And everything looked great. And I kept going back for my checkups. And I graduated to my own OB at um, week 10, where I am now. And I went in at week 10. I went in at week 12. And at week 12, they said, well, with a normal pregnancy, we don't see you back until week 16. So let's schedule that appointment and we'll see you in a month. So I said, great. So I went home. The month passed. I was feeling pregnancy symptoms. My belly was, I felt thought growing. I thought I was feeling a little bit of early movements. I wasn't sure. And I went in at 16 weeks and five days. And it was for such a, I, what I thought was going to be a normal 
checkup, I brought my kids with me because I was like, guess what, guys? We're going to be able to see the baby. You're going to be able to see what's been growing and see how they're doing, whatever. And the doctor found no heartbeat. And it was one of those where in that moment, my daughter at the time was 11. She sort of, she's very empathetic and was like clued in that something was off while we were in the doctor's appointment. And my two boys, thank God for technology because they were so engrossed in their iPads that they were clueless as to what was going on. And I think I started having a panic attack like right there on the table with the ultrasound technician still with the wand on my belly. And I I like couldn't reconcile knowing that this wasn't my baby. I had had four perfect pregnancies. How could this have happened? Like this made no sense whatsoever. So it was kind of a blur what happened after that, where because my body wasn't actually understanding that I wasn't really pregnant anymore and the baby was no longer alive, that I had to be taken into the labor and delivery unit and put into labor. Um, So my husband dropped me off at the hospital. He then took my kids home and I had to tell the parents. I like it was it was worse than telling somebody that a family member had passed away because you you go into this expecting that everything's going to go perfectly. There's no reason why it shouldn't go perfectly. And everything was going perfectly. And then all of a sudden, the carpet is pulled out from under you. And and now what? Like you, there's literally no explanation. And so I went into the hospital and that was traumatic as it was because of the fact that not only did I have to go into the labor and delivery unit, so I was hearing all these other babies being born, but they had to keep upping the dose of the misopropanol, which is actually what puts you into labor. And it took about 24 hours for me to actually deliver the baby. And then part of my placenta was attached to the uterine lining and wouldn't come out. So they had to rush me in for an actual DNC and put me under because I was losing too much blood. So it was it was traumatic. I mean, I remember even though the whole day was a blur, I remember very specific things. And one of the things that really stayed with me was right before they put me under the anesthesiologist who I remember saying to him, like, you're a godsend. He um, he asked me, do you want to be in sort of that twilight awake or do you want to be put to sleep? And I said, please, can you just put me to sleep? I said, I've been through so much in the last 24 hours. I don't even want to be awake for this. And he was like, no problem. And I thought, you are a saint. And then in my head, I just kept repeating my husband's name and my kids' names and saying, I will survive this. This is not the end. And I just kept saying my, my, the names over and over. I will survive this. This is not the end. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up. And my nurse, who also happened to be one of the most incredible people at the hospital, I feel so blessed that she was there, had my phone instantly and brought it to my pillow and said, do you want to call your husband? And I was like, I can't even believe that she did that. That just, it made me start to cry right away because I knew I needed that connection with him. And so once I was finally released and coming home from the hospital, I had to then think about, okay, I have to explain to my kids what just happened. Not only do I have to explain to my kids, but I have to think about the parents and I have to think about my husband. I have to think about myself and I have to think about my own parents. And it's this whole other level of loss where, and I'm not, I'm not, decrying or denying anybody's grief in their own loss. But when it wasn't mine, it felt like the 
the world just caved in right in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I think every loss has its own unique challenges, Kalila. I for think sure. One of the things that struck me was not only were you grieving for the loss of the child that you carried as a surrogate, but also for the parents whose child you were going to deliver. So how you look at grandparent grief when they lose a child, they lose an adult child and they have a surviving grandchild or children from, that, from their adult child. They're grieving for the, for the grandchildren, for the mother that they lost, and they're grieving for themselves. Right. So it's like it's a double-edged sword. And that, right. that's what struck me is that you're grieving not only for yourself, but you're grieving for everybody who was directly connected or remotely connected or invested in the birth of the child that you were, the birth of the child that you were carrying. Right. And the one thing that struck me when I did end up going to therapy and then we, we have a group therapy session that was nine weeks long. That was like mm -hmm. the best thing I could have found ever. Uh, but my therapist used to tell us in the group therapy sessions, it's also a loss of innocence because you're in your head. Any loss is, is sort of unexpected, even if you know the person is not well. And it's that loss of everything should be going the way it should always go. Why doesn't it continue to go that way? And he, he also said, because he was um, a parent of a stillbirth child as well. And he said, I remember driving home from the hospital thinking, how could the world continue to go on? And I'm in such grief. And that was, I, I couldn't have found better words to encapsulate exactly what I was feeling. I kept looking around thinking, the world is totally normal and everybody else is continuing on with their lives. And I'm here grieving for myself, grieving for the parents, grieving for this baby, trying to help my kids cope. How in the world is the world the same? Yeah, you know, I went through that you know, on a variety of different levels after my own adult daughter transitioned over 20 years ago. Wow. Um, you know, I went through, geez, how, how can everybody be doing grocery shopping? How can everybody be just laughing and having a good time? When my world just fell apart, I'm trying to figure out okay, what kind of a world do I want to live in now right. without the physical presence of my daughter? And it's that type of, I think, disorientation um, and, and questioning of our role, our role in the universe after a catastrophic loss. So, And for me, as a bereavement support specialist, I've sat with individuals who've experienced a variety of different losses, not just the, the, the loss of a child or the death of a child, but it's our job, I think, as bereavement support specialists, as coaches, as just society in general. We meet people at the point of what their worst tragedy is. Yeah. I, I, I can be present for your worst tragedy without comparing to mine. Right. I can, I can be bear witness to that because what I've gone through is my worst tragedy. And I can take what I've learned from that to bear witness and to be present in your time of need. And that's, mm -hmm. that's something I think that's that's important to remember. Everybody's tragedy is different. Everybody's idea of a worse loss is different. Yeah. Our job is to figure out what that is and meet you at that, that place in time. Yep. What has helped you get through the loss? What coping mechanisms, anything that you can share that has helped you get through the loss up until this point? I went into sort of the rabbit hole of all things Pinterest and research and therapy and all that kind of stuff. And I, I journaled and I colored and I learned how to do deep breathing. I was never, ever, ever one for meditation or yoga. That just never fit me. I am always a person on the go. I'm always a person finding things to do and to have to sit 
and meditate is not my idea of, of doing anything productive. However, I did teach myself certain breathing techniques that I can do anywhere at any time. And one of my favorites is called square breathing, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, but in case they don't, it's a very simple practice where you breathe in, you hold it, you breathe out and you hold it and you can set whatever counts you want. For me, I love using the number four. So I breathe in for four counts, I hold it for four counts, I breathe out for four counts, and I hold it for four counts. And I've taught my kids that breathing technique also. And it's just a really good breath technique to be able to just fill yourself with air and oxygen and and know that everything is going to settle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was definitely one of them that helped. But then in my grief, creating something to help other people was also really what helped me, where I ended up founding my company, Hours and Yours, which became the the toolkit for helping pregnancy loss survivors. Hours and Yours has always been sort of a company I, name I've worked with, with various different things in the past. My daughter's initials are YRS, so I thought it was very sweet to say it's ours and yours. Um, and so... I transitioned it into this pregnancy loss toolkit, which includes a workbook that I put together with all different resources that have helped me. For example, there's a page where it's got a wave on it. And the idea is that over the course of time, you color in every section of the wave a different color based on your feelings. And you can see the progression of time and you can understand that even though you feel like maybe a month has past and it felt like it was a day, you can really concentrate on saying, well, this day out of the month, I may have felt a little bit better, or maybe this day was a little bit worse. And it breaks up the monotony of grief to say, no, there is actually time that is passing. Um, Another thing that really helped was creating, excuse me, creating affirmations where I could just look over them and say, this is not my fault. Loss is out of my control. I might not be able to change the past, but I can change my outlook on it. So things like that to remind myself that this really was not my fault and that this was something I can't change. I can't bring this baby back, but I can do things to then move forward to help other people. So that was another thing I put in there. And then in the toolkit, besides the workbook, there's just some items so that other people can know that they're not alone. So there's a mug that says you are not alone. There's some chocolate. There's some fuzzy socks so that you can put them on and feel like you're getting a little bit of a hug. And it was just items that someone had sent me and then some that I was like, oh, I wish that was in there that I put together. And I said, this would just have made me feel so much better. Um, And so that's how the toolkit came about. And then I thought, you know what? Everybody really deserves to create their inner warrior because just because you've gone through a loss or if you've never been through a loss, maybe you have another trauma. That's no reason why you shouldn't have access to some of these tools. So I then also created the um, Create Your Inner Strength Warrior workbook. So it's really for anybody who just wants to get some tools under their belt to say, maybe I haven't experienced a loss, but I still need some of those techniques to say, okay, what breathing resources can I do? How can I look at my week and actually break up each day into sections as opposed to just looking at the past week as a blur and saying, what just happened? So it's got all sorts of resources in there as well. I like the affirmations piece that you put together. I also like the fact that they're not canned affirmations that you came up with. They were affirmations that reflected the verbiage that you use to in everyday life. 
because I, I tell my students at Utica University, when you do affirmations, affirmations are great, but make sure that if you're working with a client on affirmations, that you find out what verbiage they use that is intrinsic to their, their verbal communication and develop affirmations around that. Exactly. I, al I also like that you break up the week into sections because I've had individuals, and you probably experience this as I have, where they say, well, just take it a day at a time. Well, sometimes a day at a time is too ambitious. Sometimes we have to take it an hour at a time, a minute at a time, a breath at a time. Exactly. So breaking up the, the day into smaller sections, you get to see, well, what's maybe some of the positive things that happened at that particular moment of the day in addition to, to the negative. And you see, well, geez, I'm making some progress. There's still some sadness, which is to be expected, but I'm making some progress and maybe there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel if I continue to keep moving towards that light. Yeah. Well, some of the other things I included that you just made me think of that really reflect that is grief is not linear. And one of the things that I feel like that is so intrinsic to what we think life should look like is you go from point A to point B and there's no stops in between and there's no backwards movement. And so part of what I have explained in there is, is that every step of grief really should be called a phase because you could go forward, you could skip one, you could go 10 steps back and all of it is totally normal. Like what I felt the worst about was like, I, I was angry. Of course I went through anger almost right away, but then a few months later, I saw somebody who was pregnant and I felt this visceral reaction where I was really angry. Mm -hmm. And at first I felt guilty because I was like, no, I already passed anger. And then I remembered, no, that is totally normal. The, the phases of grief are not linear and it's okay to feel anger. And even over a year later, there are some times where I go, God, that really makes me angry. Yeah, yeah, because and I'm a firm believer in that. You must have you must have read my some notes that I had somewhere because I don't I look at phases of grief as opposed to stages because stages imposes a linear path, and grief is anything but linear and it is very circular. I mean, yeah, I there are days even over 20 years removed past the transition of my own daughter, there are still days where I can feel yearning. I can feel intense sadness, and it all depends on what's going on at that particular moment of time. Yep. And I've come to the belief that we are going to grieve to a certain extent with varying intensity for the rest of our lives. It's just as we continue to get, get farther along in time, we understand that this is part of our existence, that the bad days can teach us as much as the good days, mm -hmm. and that... Grieving in that manner is not necessarily a pathological event. It's a, it's a normal part of life. It's yeah. a microcosm of how we live other aspects of our life. It, it's mm. Some days it's happy, other days it's sad. Some moments are happy, some moments are sad. But it, is it bad? No. It's, uh, it, has, it all has something to teach us. It's all a really realistic part of the human experience and all that it has to offer. Yeah. One of my other affirmations that you just made me think of was um, stop looking at the what ifs and look at the what nows, which is yeah. exactly that, that you can't you can't go back and change anything. And it's going to be with you forever. It just makes you a part of who you are now. But all you can do is look to the future and say, OK, I can take this moment and I can accept it. And I might be angry. I might be devastated. I might feel intense pain. But what now? What's the next step? 
And it's just basically owning all that's a part of our experience after a loss. It's, um, you know, just, just taking ownership of it and finding a way to integrate it in a way that's going to help us move through grief and re-engage in a purposeful and driven and purpose-driven life. Right. So please give our listeners one or two takeaways from your life path that can help them in theirs. The biggest thing I could, I would tell anybody who's going through any sort of loss is to find your village, find the people that you know will support you, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, that they'll be there to just support you. One of the, the best things I, I remember about the whole situation was that I had a friend who had had a miscarriage about two years before I did. And she understood what I was going through, I think more than even my husband did. Mm-hmm. And she just let me sit with her and either talk about it or not talk about it or cry or just sit in silence or anything. And and I remember looking at her at a point maybe two or three months later and I said, I really want to get to the point where I don't look at you and just start crying. And she said, don't worry. I promise that will happen. And I think it took about another month or two where I saw her at our synagogue and I just gave her a hug and just said, thank you. And I was so appreciative of, of her just her ability to to just be and let me be and to have that support. So find your village, find the people that support you. That's number one. And number two goes with that hand in hand. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help from your therapist, from a doctor, um, from your husband, from from a family member, from your children. My daughter is one of those people that is so empathetic and feel so strongly that for the first few months following the loss, every time I would get upset, whether it had nothing to do with the loss or everything to do with the loss, she was like at my side, ready to give me a hug. And I knew that if I needed something, I could ask her. So to to not be afraid to take on the world by yourself and say, you know what? I really need help cooking dinner tonight. I really need help washing the dishes. I really need help. I just need to go to bed. Somebody else take over and to to not be afraid to take that step and ask. Yeah. And I think the combination of both, like you said, having your own village, having the support of your own personalized village and a good therapist, a good healthcare practitioner, I think that combination can help us get through anything. Yeah. I know, I know, you know, in the past when I worked with individuals with substance use, disorder issues. The combination of a good 12-step support group um, and a good therapist uh, was, was key in helping them attain long-term, long-term sobriety. So um, I, I think those takeaways are, are on point from my experience and are invaluable. And I think it's our, those are great suggestions to, uh, to live by. Thank you. So if people want to contact you, where can they find you? What, how can they uh, inquire about your services? And do you have any events or projects that you'd like our listeners to know about? Sure. I am sort of all over the place. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm even on Locals for anybody who knows what that is. It's kind of the same thing, but it's a much less well-known platform. 
Um, but my Facebook name is exactly my name. It's Kalila Beth Green. I, I went to go verify, like, I got that blue check and they made me mm -hmm. take off the Siciliano because legally my last name is still just green. So no Siciliano. My husband's always like, you sure you don't want to get that in there? And I say, Kalila Siciliano is a mouthful. Let's just leave it. So Facebook is Kalila Beth Green. Um, on Instagram, it's my company name, which is ours and yours, spelled O-U-R-S-A-N-D-Y-R-S. And on LinkedIn, I'm also under Kalila Beth Green, I think. Um, excuse me. And my website, which has all of my information for purchasing not only the workbooks, but the pregnancy loss toolkit is kalilagreenspeaker.com. It also has a way to get in touch with me, to join the mailing list, um, things of the sort. And I'm working on getting my podcast released by about Thanksgiving time. So that's called Pushing Through Loss. We're going to be talking all about pregnancy loss, um, stillbirth, infant death, but then also really how to create your inner strength warrior from your trauma. So hopefully it'll be a lot of stories about hope as opposed to pain. Um obviously going through the pain to get to the hope in the first place. And I'm working also on putting together a course that will be sort of a following pregnancy loss support group with some art therapy and journaling. I'm going to need a nap just trying to keep up with everything <laughs> you got going on. My goodness. As I asked you in the beginning of the podcast, when do you sleep? I think you just answered that. Yeah. It's like when you can, so. Exactly. Maybe a half hour here. Well, see, this is the great part about being Jewish, because on Saturday, it's all turned off. We turn off all the electronics. We do not go online. We don't do work. So I take a nap on Saturday afternoons. Good. I'll remember not to email you on a Saturday then, <laughs> or, or try to otherwise contact you. But um, Kalila, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. I wish you well with your future endeavors, and particularly with the podcast. And when you get the podcast up and running, let me know, and I'll get I'll help get the word out to, Thank to my you. subscribers. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. It is. It's really an honor to be the person who talks about pregnancy loss, and I'm so grateful that I got a chance to talk to you. Well, I'm grateful that that you chose this platform to do this, and um, I feel blessed that you did so. Thank you again. Thank you. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.